the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Does prosperity lead to happiness or is it the other way around? The way we view money can either make us live in fear of never having enough or it can offer us the opportunity to achieve long-term prosperity. Today's guest, Joyce Mortar, helps people achieve financial well-being by focusing on psychological and relational issues around money. She teaches how to release limiting habits and beliefs to open up a world of financial security and confidence. Joyce is a psychotherapist, speaker, and founder of Urban Balance, a nationwide counseling practice. Her new book is The Financial Mindset Fix, a mental fitness program for an abundant life. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Joyce, you've asked the question, does prosperity lead to happiness or is it the other way around? And I think that is such an interesting question because I believe many of us have it backwards. What are your thoughts on this? Well, as a licensed psychotherapist, I've been practicing for 25 years. And I found that when we do our internal work and we align with our higher, deeper self, and we align our gifts with the need in the world, we welcome prosperity. And it doesn't go the other way around. If we're chasing money, money does not bring happiness. But when we're connected with our essence and we're doing the work that we're called to do and meant to do in the world for the greater good, we're happy, we're joyful, and we lead an abundant and prosperous life. And I let off with that question, Joyce, for the very reason that I I do believe most people think that they will be happy when they have money, that money does bring happiness. And I think that that's a great way for us to start this conversation because your work really teaches us that it's the opposite. Correct. Many people come into therapy and they're looking for the perfect job, the perfect relationship, the bigger bank account, the you know, more money. But that doesn't happen until you get the inside right. And so it's focusing on the externals that we just end up chasing our dreams and we're not feeling, you know, content on a deeper level. But when we work on our relationship with ourselves and we look at our self-worth and we embrace our worth, we can manifest a greater life for ourselves. So let's expand upon that a little bit. How does a person's mental health relate to his or her finances? They're very very interconnected. When we are dealing with mental health issues, which we all deal with as part of the human condition, no shame, no stigma, especially during the pandemic, many of us are experiencing stress, anxiety, depression, grief and loss, or trauma. And this can negatively impact our job performance, our ability to be creative in our work and productive. And so that negatively impacts our finances. And the other way around, when we, you know, when we're not taking care of our self-worth, we're not putting ourselves out in the, in the world in the way that we would. Something really interesting that I noticed in my practice was as my clients made progress in therapy, they started to earn more money. And I was like, why in the world is this happening? We're not even talking about finances. And I realized it was because we're always working on their self-worth. 
And as they felt better about themselves, they were putting themselves out in the world with more confidence, more assertiveness. They were expanding their comfort zone and being more courageous in their professions and negotiating financially. I know a lot of people who you talk about self-worth and and self-value. They tie that to the amount of money they make. I, I know people that own businesses who are really making a major impact in the world. They're doing wonderful work. But because their sales are not at a certain level, they actually view themselves as failing. Yes, exactly. And we need to understand that our worth is internal. We are not our bank accounts. We are not our financial lives. And we are always innately worthy and deserving. When we connect with our essence, we know that. And we know that our financial situation, whether it's bad or good, is temporary. It can change. And we're not attached to that. We're not attaching our worth to our finances. When we do attach our worth to our finances, we can experience tremendous financial anxiety. We can experience depression. Actually, 16% of suicides are financially driven, and suicide rates are at a 30-year all-time high. So it's, it's very, very concerning. And so when we attach our worth to our finances, we're operating from a place of ego. So in my book and in my program, I talk about how to embrace your true worth and detach from ego so that you can manage your finances in a way that is conscious and you can tolerate, you know, risk tolerance. You can tolerate ebbs and flows without, you know, feeling poorly. And Susie Orman, the financial advisor, noticed the same thing that I did in her work. She said that she noticed that self-worth leads to net worth, but that it does not work the other way around. We all know people with a tremendous amount of money who aren't happy, don't feel good about themselves on a deeper level. It's more of an empty feeling with their finances. And we all have different money scripts. So some people have, you know, money, money worship or money status scripts where they think that money is going to bring them happiness or self-worth when we really want to be money vigilant. We want to be conscious of our financial life and tend to it as part of our self-care. If we stay in that ego place of fear, we have a scarcity mindset that there's never enough and then we're always fearful. But when we can switch it around, we can switch into the place of abundance where there's more than enough and, and then we actually attract that into our life, as you say. Very well said, Joan. I completely agree. And scarcity mindset, is it's really come about even more so with the pandemic. People are fearful and competitive over resources. I mean, think about even the toilet paper or gasoline. Scarcity mindset is fear-based where we're competitive over resources and we focus on lack and what we don't have. While an abundance mindset is really trust that there's more than enough resources for all of us, including money or opportunities, jobs, food, love, whatever it might be. And we work then in a collaborative way with others instead of being competitive. And we, you know, operate in a a way that involves trust. And just like you said, it welcomes the flow of prosperity. So what about the people who are raised like me, for example, I'm middle aged and my parents were depression era children. And so we were raised with a particular thought process around money and and perhaps somebody who may be younger, but has parents who didn't have a whole lot. And, you know, they're, they're programmed from a young age with the scarcity mindset. How do we recognize this internal programming and then overcome it? You're exactly right. So each of us have our own psychology of money, the way we think, feel, and behave around money, and that's shaped and molded by our earlier life experiences with our parents or past relationships or past jobs or cultural or religious beliefs. Like you, my father grew up in the Great Depression and had a scarcity mindset, and when I was an adolescent, he was unemployed for many years, and that's financial trauma. And financial traumas can really cause us to operate in a fear-based way. And that impacted my adult life as an entrepreneur and business owner. I noticed that um, in my practice, we all unconsciously recreate what's familiar until we become aware and we choose something better. 
So I recreated a state of financial anxiety, and my business was in a period of cash flow hell. I thought that I was going to have to file business bankruptcy, and I had tremendous financial anxiety. And I used the tools for my clinical training to turn the ship around. Those are the mindsets that I share in my book, 12 mindsets that help us shift our psychology of money, embrace our worth, access support, and cultivate mental and financial resilience and prosperity. Joyce, would you share a few of those mindsets with us? Absolutely. The first one we've already discussed, which is abundance, shifting from scarcity to abundance. The second is awareness, which is becoming conscious. We all have financial denial. We have rationalizations, intellectualizations, and we need to become conscious of our financial reality and our mental health reality, which is also impacting our financial health. Other chapters include self-love, really working on your relationship with yourself to embrace your worth. I talk about compassion, how when we have compassion for others and, and for ourselves, welcome prosperity that isn't about materialism or greed or excess, but it's about becoming our best self so that we can shine the light for others and help more. We can provide jobs or internships or be philanthropists. I also talk about you know, accessing support, which I think is one of the most important keys to success. We're all interdependent as human beings, and I let financial shame and fear keep me from seeking the business and financial consultation that would have helped me, that would have prevented those dark days in my business. And so I learned we all need support. We're all human. We're all works in progress. I think, you know, again, we all deal with mental health issues or money issues, and help is available and effective. But what about these thought patterns that we have that we're not even aware of, like money is the root of all evil, or if I want so much money, I'm, I'm a greedy person. How do we change those patterns so that we can welcome abundance? You're exactly right that our thoughts precede our emotions and behaviors. This is the thesis of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most empirically supported forms of therapy. So in my book, I have mock therapy sessions, which are journaling prompts, where I encourage people to think about what does money mean to you? What do you think of when I say the word money? My own therapist asked me that question, and I responded with stress. And she said, well, no wonder you make it go away. So I had to shift that belief using cognitive behavioral therapy. And there, there are exercises in my book that are thought records where we take the negative belief and we shift it. So I shifted mine from believing that money was stressful to viewing money as a resource and one of which I am deserving. And that changed my life. It transformed my life obviously with with a lot of hard work and support from others, but I was able to successfully sell my business four years ago for a multi-million dollar amount after thinking that I would have to file bankruptcy not too long ago. So really, I believe that this program can help people shift their mindset about finances and welcome an abundant life. I was one of those people, Joyce, who always felt that I was greedy if I wanted to earn a lot of money, that it just wasn't the right thing to do. And I remember I did an interview a number of years ago where the guest said to me, I think anyone who doesn't want to earn six, seven, eight figures, he said, I think that's an extremely selfish person. And then I asked why. And he said, because when you have a lot of money, you can do a lot of good in the world. And that got me thinking about it. It, it changed the way I thought about money because I started to think, well, the more I have, the more good I can do. So I'm not a bad person, you know, and that was something that worked for me, you know, switching the whole thought by figuring out how to reframe it. Is that something that people can do that would make a big difference in their lives? Absolutely. That was very well said, Joan. And I had the same experience. I, as a woman, I feel like I was socialized to be a people pleaser and a good girl and not ask for too much. And I set my own ceilings financially. And I realized that by expanding, you know, my thinking and welcoming more financial success, I was able to help more. Uh, but my accountant, my CPA, when he looked at my books, when I was in that really tough spot with my business, he said, Joyce, 
you're not running a charity to employ therapists. He said, you deserve to make a profit. And he helped me realize that when my business was profitable and healthy, then it sustained more people. I was able to hire more therapists and provide more jobs and provide sliding fee services or pro bono counseling services. And eventually we were able to give to charities that the therapists were aligned with and, and wanted to donate to. So it, it, it is a shift in mindset that when we become our best self and we grow and expand and we welcome more in our life, we can be of service to others in a more meaningful and helpful way. If we don't have anything, we have nothing to give. Joyce, how important is it for us to have a budget? I think it's important to have consciousness. So I know for me, I'm a spender, and it's very easy for me to go into financial denial. And so I think it's really important to have routine and regular financial check-ins. A budget is a framework. And just like when we're managing our food and exercise, you know, we want to be conscious. It's about balance. We want to make sure that there's a balance between spending and saving, and we don't want to be overly rigid. You know, you should be allowed to treat yourself and have vacations and spend money, but you also don't want to spend so much that it becomes self-harm. You know, sometimes we think retail therapy, for example, is self-care, but it becomes self-harm if we're overspending and, and causing ourselves to get into debt. So having a budget is a framework of consciousness. And when we visit it regularly, ourselves and with our partners or loved ones who we share a financial reality with, then we can all be on the same page and we can develop a vision for improving our financial health. So I think it is important to operate in a framework of reality. And Joyce, what would you say to someone who's listening to you right now, who agrees with everything you're saying and and wants to get started on this path? What advice do you offer to help someone on this new journey? Well, I definitely would recommend to work the program in my book, which is the Financial Mindset Fix. It's a mental fitness program for an abundant life. It's on Amazon, Audible. It's available in bookstores. And it's a self-help program. It's a step-by-step program with practical tips and exercises. You have to do the work. It's like you know, exercising with a personal trainer. You don't get the results unless you do the exercises. But I think that's a great place to start. I also recommend doing your own reflective work, whether that's counseling or therapy or coaching or some sort of spiritual program where you're checking in on yourself and you're doing some deeper exploration on your relationship with yourself and your finances. And once again, the book is The Financial Mindset Fix, a mental fitness program for an abundant life. Joyce, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? My website is JoyceMarter.com, J-O-Y-C-E-M-A-R-T-E-R.com. And I'm on all the social media, and I would love to connect with people. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much, Joan. Great conversation. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. 
As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. Cancer is reported to be the second leading cause of cancer death in the U.S. for men and women combined. Yet, most adults are not getting screened. Joining us today to talk about this disease and the importance of early detection is Dr. Lisa Boardman, an assistant professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Welcome, Dr. Boardman. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me here to talk about uh, this important topic. And you're right, it is very important, doctor, because it's been reported that colon cancer claimed more than 50,000 lives last year. Can you briefly explain what colon cancer is and how it progresses? So colorectal cancer is an abnormal growth of cells in the colon of um, the glandular epithelium or lining, and it is a cancer that starts there and that can then spread uh, to different parts of the body in, in its most advanced stages. Are there usually early warning signs? So I think an important message about colorectal cancer prevention is that in most cases, people don't develop warning signs too early. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have signs when they've got colorectal cancer of developing bleeding per rectum or dark tarry stools, abdominal pain, maybe a change in their bowel habits, maybe weight loss. But the important, most important thing and what I hope that um, people will hear and really, um, you know, take to heart is that colon cancer is one of those rare cancers where we actually can remove the precancerous polyp and prevent the cancer from even developing. And that's just such a better time to intervene. So understanding that prevention is key, what are some of the types of screenings that are available? So there are a variety of them. One is colonoscopy, um, which is the test where the colon has to be cleansed and then uh, the provider inserts a video tube and looks inside of the colon and removes polyps or takes biopsies if cancer is seen. And then there are several stool-based tests. One of them is called the FIT or fecal immunochemical test, and that's where a stool sample gets evaluated to see if there's evidence of uh, blood breakdown products in um, the stool. And then a more recently developed one is a targeted DNA test that combines the FIT test, but it also takes the stool sample and it looks for DNA changes from DNA that is actually collected from the stool itself because the cancer or polyps actually shed their cells into the stool and they're able to detect that and then they have a particular molecular signature that they can identify that can help uh, to identify the person who might have colon polyps or cancer. And there's also um, a CT colonography, which is a type of CAT scan that is able to reconstruct uh, and make a video that is able to see the inside of the colon and identify where there might be polyps or cancer. Doctor, you always hear people complaining about the thought of having a colonoscopy done. It's something that a lot of people really dread doing. So for the average person Mm -hmm. who is in good health and doesn't have a history of colon cancer, is the fecal test or cologuard screening, is that a viable option? Absolutely. I, I think, again, an important message is to do some type of colorectal cancer screening. And the using those options that I just mentioned, including the, the Cologuard test, the FIT test, are, are really viable options. How often should a person be tested and, and when should the screening begin? So screening should for certain begin by age 50, and that's if a person's average risk, that they don't have a family history of colon cancer and a relative under 60 that's a 
first-degree relative, like a parent, a sibling, or a child, or they don't have some type of a hereditary condition, or they don't have inflammatory bowel disease. So for those people that are called average risk and they're not having symptoms, um, all of the guidelines for sure start them by age 50. However, for people uh, that there has been an increase in incidence of colorectal cancer in people under the age of 50, and so one society, the American Cancer Society, has actually now endorsed starting that screening process at age 45. And for African-American people, the recommendation is to have screening start at age 45. Why do you think the incidence rate is rising? Does it have something to do with our diet? It could. Um, there, that answer is really not known at this point. There's a lot of, um, it appears not to be from a hereditary, hereditary conditions. Known hereditary conditions only account for 20% of the young onset colon cancer cases, but there have been associations that have suggested there could be environmental things, and diet is certainly one that could be a culprit. There's also been associations um, potentially with people who live a more sedentary life, so um, decreased activity, um, even down to the level of too much television watching has been associated with, in some studies, with an increased risk for younger people getting colon cancer. So having a healthy diet, exercising, having our screenings done, is there anything else that we should be doing? Um, it basically is living a healthy lifestyle. I think the focus about trying to avoid, like in terms of dietary, um, processed meat, red meat, trying to limit that to maybe a couple times a month. Those have been associated um, with a, a better chance of not developing colon cancer. Another dietary thing is uh, definitely high in vegetable diet, trying to get the five to seven servings of vegetables and some fruits um, have been associated. So those are things that people can do, maybe a little more specific about diet. With prevention being so important, why do you believe so many people aren't getting tested? I think that there's probably a couple, at least a couple of reasons. One may be a fear of finding out they have something wrong with them. Right. And, you know, the message here is it's better to find out you have a polyp and remove it than to wait till you develop symptoms because that polyp has transformed to cancer. And so that is a really uh, important part of prevention. And then I think another thing is the colon and kind of bowel habits and everything have a bit of a stigma associated with them. People don't want to discuss it. Um, and I think a fear, particularly if you were to get colonoscopy, people don't look forward to having to take a bowel prep to cleanse their colon, um, kind of the invasiveness feeling of having a colonoscopy, um, just fear about that. Um, so I think, again, stressing that there are options so that you don't have to not do the screening because you're just so afraid of doing colonoscopy. And any final thoughts? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, I think it's so important, again, to, like, discuss it in your family, know your family history, and, and to not be afraid of prevention. And if your doctor doesn't bring it up, you bring it up that you want to be screened. And, again, thank you so much and for contributing to our awareness about colorectal cancer. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing this life-saving information. Hi, I'm Ed Lamoureux owner of Lamore Life Productions, a marketing consultancy specializing in visual storytelling and video production. Today, I'm sharing my top four tips that you should consider when producing video content for social media. Tip number one, shoot high-quality video footage. Whether you're shooting with a professional videographer or self-producing your videos using your smartphone, here's what to keep in mind. Lighting. Use a strong light source. This will ensure brighter, clearer videos. And sound. Invest in quality microphones rather than relying on your phone's internal mic. Tip number two, start with a strong hook. The first few seconds of your video are crucial. If they don't catch a viewer's attention, they'll quickly move on. Tip number three, show your face on video. Yeah, I know, this is the part that's embarrassing and uncomfortable, right? Well, showing your face on video helps create trust with your viewers, and trust often leads to more comments, likes, shares, reviews, and recommendations. And tip number four, create a clear flow. The best videos on social media have a clear introduction, middle, and end. Think of it as telling the viewers what you're going to tell them, telling them, and then telling them what you've told them. Repetition helps a viewer to remember what they saw and heard in your video. If you need help with your video needs or would like to schedule a free 30-minute chat with me, go to my website at lamorestrategies.com. That's L-A-M-O-U-R strategies.com. 
This is Ed Lamoureux from Lamore Life Productions, where our favorite story to tell is yours. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Change is inevitable, so it's vital for us to develop internal strengths like self-worth, determination, and kindness. These make us resilient, the foundation of lasting well-being in a changing world. With an approach that is grounded in the science of positive neuroplasticity, today's guest, Dr. Rick Hansen, explains how to create a deep sense of contentment. Dr. Hansen is a psychologist and New York Times bestselling author. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Thanks for joining us. Joan, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Rick, what we're about to discuss today is rooted in the science of positive neuroplasticity. Can you explain what that is to us? It's a mouthful, but Uh what it really means uh, is essentially that our brain and our nervous system is designed to be changed by our experiences, and the result is learning, broadly defined. Learning how to use chopsticks or navigate a tricky conversation with your brother-in-law, or learning, honestly, how to be happier, how to be wiser, how to be more loving, how to be uh, more compassionate to yourself. Any one of those kinds of positive changes must involve changing your brain for the better. And in the book, I get into the details of how people can actually tap the power of positive neuroplasticity to turn everyday experiences into lasting strengths inside themselves, hardwired into their own nervous system. Well, isn't the science of neuroplasticity, it's exciting because I remember not that long ago, we believed that the brain was set and as you got older, you lost function and and we really didn't have an understanding about the power that we have to create new circuitry in the brain. I know, it's really remarkable. Um, You can do things with your mind, and maybe we'll talk about them, that strengthen existing connections between neurons, that grow new neurons that bring more blood flow and thus oxygen and glucose to busy parts of the brain that do things. You can even do things with your own mind that will change the expression of genes deep down inside the, your own DNA, inside your own neurons. Rick, in your book, Resilient, you write that we develop mental resources in two stages. First, yes. we need to experience what we want to grow. And second, we must convert that passing experience into a lasting change in the nervous system. So how do we go about doing that? How do we create lasting change in the nervous system? You're right at the important question. So the relatively straightforward part is the first step. Have some kind of beneficial experience in the first place. Maybe it's a good intention, or maybe you realize something in a relationship, or maybe you just feel calm and strong inside yourself, or a moment of gratitude, whatever it might be. That's usually the pretty straightforward part. Most people are having many mildly beneficial experiences in a day. The important part is what we forget all the time, which is the second step, which is that it's important to stay with the experience, feel it in your body, and recognize what's enjoyable or rewarding about it. Because those factors, extending the duration of the experience for a breath or two or three, uh, getting more of a sense of it emotionally and physically, and also finding what is pleasurable about it or meaningful to you about it. Those three factors, the duration, the embodiment, and the reward value of the experience are known to science to heighten the learning process, to steepen your growth curve, 
as you go through the experiences you're already having. This means that at a time when so many people feel pushed around by external forces, and also so many people feel kind of like they're running on empty in many ways inside, we have the power every day actually to fill ourselves up from the inside out, making ourselves stronger along the way. So this strength is what makes us resilient. And how do you define resiliency? What does it mean to be resilient? Yeah, resilient means both surviving the worst day of your life and thriving every day of your life. In other words, resilience is what um, helps us manage change, which you brought up in the very beginning of this conversation. Resilience helps us manage change um, and challenges. And if you think about it, just to have a job or do an interview with a radio personality like I'm doing right now, Mm -hmm. I've got to be a little bit resilient to be able to do this. Uh, Settle sibling quarrels, um, deal with a boss, deal with a health problem, deal with poverty or or discrimination. Um, Any kind of issue like that requires resilience. And resilience comes from underlying psychological strengths like mindfulness, gratitude, motivation, or courage. And the good news for me is that we can become more self-reliant. Uh, There's a lot about positive psychology or self-help in general that, to me, is overly positive. You know, it's like a magic carpet ride. Just do gratitude practice and you'll be fine. Well, gratitude is good, but we also need to develop inner capabilities, strengths for coping and adapting and continuing, even when things are difficult. Rick, when two people go through the same experience, why does one person appear to move through it with ease? when another person might be stuck. So for example, I went through tremendous challenges all at one time. My marriage ended, my mother died, my sister died, my son left for college. And in that time, at the time I should say, I was really broken, but I was able to move through it and do the work that I'm doing now. And someone said to me, anyone, like I shouldn't be here is really what they were saying. Some other person would have really fallen apart. So what is it that made me be able to move through it that way and someone else may have really been stuck in that challenge time yeah probably about a third of what enabled you to be that way was built into your dna Mm -hmm. that's what the research shows in general but the other two-thirds were the inner strengths the capabilities the outlook the internalized sense of people who loved you for example that you acquired over the years And that gets to a larger point, which is that probably about two-thirds of who we are is actually under our own influence. That's both hopeful, and it takes us right into a kind of old-school recognition of responsibility. It's up to us to help ourselves grow and gain as much as possible every day. And then it's really interesting, you know, it's like in athletics. uh, What you train in off the field is what you draw on on the field. And as, as you really experience directly, at any moment, things can happen. And it could be a perfect storm. The bottom could fall out in one area of your life, while at the same time, you've got bad luck in another area of your life. And then what do you do? And at that point, to me, it's important to have developed resources outside ourselves, you know, like money in the bank and uh, fences you know, between us and our neighbors or mm-hmm. you know, more broadly, a stop sign at the corner. But that said, what most makes the difference is the resources we've built up inside ourselves. And so for me, the takeaway point here is to look for, you know, you cannot do anything about the past. The only thing under our influence really is how much we grow or learn today. That's it. But the difference between not growing at all or learning at all or becoming stronger at all by the end of the day versus growing a little bit today, becoming a little wiser, becoming a little more skillful with other people, becoming a little happier inside yourself. That little bit, day plus day plus day plus day, makes all the difference in your life. And I bet you yourself did a lot of that kind of thing along the way so that you had more inside you when you know the storm hit. Well, and you know, Rick, at the time, I didn't know that I was as strong as I was. And, and I say that because I, I bet there are a lot of people listening right now that are going through challenges who don't believe they can make it to the next day and the day after. So for those people, in addition to the things that you were just mentioning, what do you suggest they do in order to heal from a painful experience? Because we all have the ability. So what can they do? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so the book Resilient grew out of this online experiential program I created called The Foundations of Well-Being, which surprised me because it came 
wildly popular. And I think what made it popular is that it's experiential. So if a person is going to recover from negative emotions, from anxiety or blue mood or feeling hurt or feeling resentful, the takeaway point is that it's really important to bring experiences of what are positive in two ways. So you look for experiences that are first and foremost authentic. No rose-colored glasses, no positive thinking. They must be genuine experiences of gratitude or calming or ease or pleasure, just the ordinary opportunities in daily life to experience something good, something beneficial. And then when you experience it, take it into yourself in its own right. That's the first thing to do, because that will build psychological resources inside you. The second thing to do, which is a very powerful method, you can be aware of both negative material off to the side of your mind, like let's say old feelings of hurt or current feelings of, say, worry, while in the front of your awareness, big and prominent, be aware of something positive that's kind of the antidote to what's negative, or it's sort of matched to it in some way, like feeling calm and reassured if you've got anxiety off in the corner, or feeling that people do care about you if you have feelings of hurt off in the corner. And in the famous saying from neuroscience to finish here, neurons that fire together, wire together. And that means that if we can be aware of two things at once, small negative off to the side, big positive in the front of awareness, the positive will start to associate with the negative to gradually calm it, ease it, bring context to it, and eventually even replace it. And any single time a person does that for, you know, half a minute at a time, any single time we do that usually will not be utterly transformational, but gradually accumulating. The brain is a vast associational network. So if you just keep associating positive to negative, again, a lot of research shows you can gradually ease it inside yourself and eventually heal yourself. The book is Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness by Dr. Rick Hansen. If you'd like more information about Rick and his work, you can visit rickhansen.net. Rick, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would suggest that you go through your day and five or ten times a day, slow down for something that's beneficial. A mild experience usually that's pleasurable or useful slow down for it and take a few breaths to kind of marinate in it so it becomes a part of you. And when you do that, you'll get a double benefit. You'll both take into yourself, gradually hardwiring into your nervous system, these psychological strengths. And second, it'll change your outlook because then you'll be going through your day looking for opportunities. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. As I said in the beginning, change is inevitable, so it's vital for us to develop internal strengths. That's a foundation that makes us resilient, so thank you for giving us some strategies to get the job done. Thank you, Joan. It's been a privilege to be here. We'll be right back. Did you know that smoking is the leading cause of people being diagnosed with lung cancer? Isn't it time for you to quit smoking? Hi, I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. It is not easy for everyone to stop smoking cigarettes. If you are a smoker and want to quit, let these tips help you stop smoking. First, start reducing the amount of cigarettes you smoke each day until you have no more cigarettes left. Let that day be the start of you being a non-smoker for good. Second, change your habit and substitute a cigarette for a water bottle so you change the hand-to-mouth motion with something healthy. Number three, create a positive affirmation and repeat it a few times each day. For example, I am a non-smoker today and every day. Let good health and thinking about the money you will save as a non-smoker continue to motivate you. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard. 
and be right. Quite often, that's what we want. And so we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, then that connects to our ego. But ego's not really gonna get you that far. If you want a result, then you're gonna wanna work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting, but let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit CYACYL.com slash media training. to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Linda Mitchell, an intuitive life coach who helps her clients move through life's challenges and transitions with purpose, passion, and clarity to emerge more powerful, fulfilled, and purposeful. Linda is here today to discuss why self-care is not selfish. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. It's always great to be here. So, Linda, this is such an important topic because when we don't care for ourselves, when our cup gets depleted, we're not able to care for other people. So in this busy world of unending activity and to-do lists, how do you suggest we find time for self-care and why do you believe it's so important? Well, you're right, Joan. It is so important. We are indeed a culture of overworked individuals. Self-care does not mean putting your goals on hold. Simply means learning how to weave in time for yourself and your loved ones. And as a coach, I really encourage my clients to make quality of life and self-care a top priority. Initially, you may feel resistance, even guilt, sometimes discomfort or even unworthiness. But in truth, unless you schedule in self-care, you will eventually begin to live your life from a place of resentment, anger, overwhelm, or exhaustion. Being depleted is not good for you or anyone around you. You can't give from an empty receptacle, right? right. We mistakenly think that self-care may promote laziness, selfishness, or somehow keep us from achieving our goals when actually it's been proven the opposite is true. It's a myth that constantly working long hours makes you more productive. Being overworked and perpetually stressed increases the likelihood of errors, illnesses, injury, and actually diminishes our creativity, our productivity, patience, and our effectiveness. I mean, what if a busy executive or an overworked parent never takes time out to revitalize themselves? How can they continue to give their families from a place of compassion, love, and support? We have nothing left to offer others when we're spent. So, Linda, you've been helping people understand the importance of self-care. Can you suggest some ways that our listeners can foster self-care? Sure. And, you know, self-care does not have to cost a lot of money. As a work-centered culture, many of us have lost touch with our inner wisdom. A wonderful way to reconnect and rejuvenate is simply to sit quietly, allow yourself to connect with your heart space, and sometimes just unplugging from the world can be immensely helpful. Reflect on what recharges your batteries. Tune in and discern what will serve you best. It could be a soothing bath with relaxing music, journaling, a yoga class, creating artwork, or a walk in nature. 
Perhaps you'll deepen your meditation practice or reclaim a hobby. And for others, a monthly massage, energy work like Reiki, or maybe a night out with friends. Sometimes a weekend away is in order. The people who have a hard time saying no, the, the people pleasers, they're probably the ones who need to say yes the most. How do you help those people recognize the importance of self-care? Wow, you're so right, Joan. The people pleasers of the world are those who put themselves last on the list and are probably most in need of some self-care. And for them especially, it's not selfish. Rather, it's incredibly necessary to take time for some much-needed self-care in order to be able to continue to serve those in their circle. There's an epidemic of people who are overscheduled and undervalued. They feel invisible, unheard, and rarely make it to the top of their own priority list. They often buy into the myth that the good girls always serve others and don't take care of themselves. You know, the older generation looked at self-care as self-indulgence. And as role models, they never taught their children, especially the women, to focus on themselves. And to those especially, I say, Don't wait for a personal crisis to make time for self-care. If we're always on the go without stopping to care for ourselves, sooner or later, our bodies will cry out either from pain or exhaustion. And it's hard to accomplish our goals from that place. I often say many people take better care of their cars than they do their own bodies. Mm -hmm. Think about it. We change the oil, rotate the tires, do scheduled maintenance, because we know the better care we take of our cars, the more mileage we get out of them. Well, our bodies are exactly the same. The more attention we pay to self-care, the better mindset we're in. And then it's easier to reach our goals from that place. Schedule some self-care this week. When others see you're happier and less stressed, they'll be relieved and delighted to spend time with you. And that's not selfish. A little goes a long way towards creating joy, balance, and good health in your life. Linda, thank you so much for being here with us. If you would like to learn how you can take better care of yourself, if you'd like to learn more about Linda, you can visit her website, livinginspiredcoaching.com. And as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com forward slash Linda. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.